Good morning, and welcome to episode 434 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the BaseballReference.com Play Index. I am Ben Lindbergh, joined once more in the flesh, the prodigal podcaster, Sam Miller. Howdy. Welcome back. Thanks, Ben. We've missed you. Uh, yeah, you it took, I, apparently it took a lot of people to fill my, <laughs> a, a lot of uh, very distinguished people to fill my seat. It did, up to four at, at one time. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes, yeah, sometimes it, it feels like I'm doing four-fifths of the work on this <laughs> podcast. Uh-huh. That's not true. It never feels that way. You're <laughs> the one who's always doing the work. There were some updates in ongoing Effectively Wild stories that we have been tracking that you may have missed while you were on your trip. Oh, yeah? Oh, I'm eager to hear. I I hope that there's some Albers web news. (laughs) That is the first item on the agenda. (laughs) I was reading all the foreign newspapers trying to get my Albers web news fix, but they were all talking about Ukraine. (laughs) So we did have a game finished by Ryan Webb, and there were no games finished by Matt Albers, so Webb has now narrowed his lead, or uh, Webb has now narrowed Albers' lead, to it's now 83 to 77 in the race to have the most games finished ever without a save. So that was exciting. Uh-huh. The other news is that Oscar Tavares changed agencies again. <laughs> oh, did we? I don't even remember this. We, talk, we talked about Oscar. <laughs> he changed agencies so many times last year i think it was um he, he changed he changed agents four times between last Jan- last january and last september so this is now a fifth agency change since since last january so for, you know. for a player who has no no negotiations to do i mean he he can't he he like legally can't negotiate basically unless he wants to sign a, sign a long-term extension, extension. Yeah. Yeah, or get that like lucrative, uh, like I, I don't know what is it like classic baseball card. <laughs> like, is classic the company that did minor league cards? Sometime I don't ago? know. Uh, anyway, but yeah, it's one of one of my favorite ongoing stories in baseball, and one of the most. Who is his? Who is it now? Who's he with? So so he many of his changes were leaving and then returning to the same agency, but mm. this one I think is a completely new one. He is now represented by Dan Lozano. So oh, uh, that's so that's a that's a that's a that's a step up. I mean, I was imagining that that Oscar Tavares is basically doing the red paper clip, and he keeps ending up with a red paper clip. But uh, do you have to but, do that if you're a top prospect in baseball? I feel like if you want to go to the biggest agency, you could. It's not like uh-huh. you need to earn it. So so I don't know I don't know what the story is, but I continue to follow it with great interest. Can you think of? A reason why a player would change agencies five times in fifteen months and not well, even. I, I, you know, I can't really think of a reason why he wouldn't. Is the thing. I mean, <laughs> it it feels like at this point in his career, um, you know, there's there's no real uh, there's no real tension in leaving an agent. I wouldn't think it's not like this is the time to do it, right? So if we weren't paying attention, it would seem totally normal to be sort of shopping around and, um, you know trying trying new things i mean he's basically he's he's basically like uh like okay so so basically we're like old married people and we're like can you believe he's gone on four dates in the last year and a half (laughs) and you know that's just because we're old 
um, but to uh, you know to a college kid, which is what he essentially is, he's just uh, he's just dating. Sort of. It's not just uh, it's not just a series of first dates, though. It's a it's a series of what would be long term relationships for many players. I guess the more you leave, the easier it becomes to leave because the agent that you're leaving doesn't really have much time or effort invested in you. It's probably hard to leave an agent who has been representing you since you were 16 or something and represented you when you were drafted and has been with you his whole career, and then you leave him for a bigger agency. That's That's got to be difficult, but if you have changed agents four times and none of them has been with you for very long, then it's probably pretty easy. Mm-hmm. The other story involves Jaffet Amador. Yes, I saw this one. I like this one. You like this one. So he is heading back to Mexico. He played in seven games for AAA Oklahoma City in the Astros system, and then he hit the disabled list with something, and now he is being loaned back to Mexico for the rest of the season because he wasn't going to play first base for the Astros. If anyone does that, if anyone is called up to do that, it will be Jonathan Singleton, who's off to a great start. So Amador is now going back to Mexico City, and he can't play, I guess, for another major league team for this year. He could he could come back and play in the AFL, or I don't know if the Astros could give up his rights somehow, but this may bring an end to his career in American professional baseball. May not. He might be back next year for a new team or even with the Astros, but, but sorry to see him go. Apparently he didn't work out over the offseason, and I, I guess he had a legitimate his excuse. His wife was pregnant, and it was a, a difficult pregnancy, I gather, and so there were some health concerns there, and so he was expected to lose weight over the winter, but instead he showed up weighing between 320 and 330. So now he, he takes that weight back to Mexico. Mm-hmm. Uh, are, we, and... are, we, are we 100% sure that he's not pregnant? <laughs> And so that brings a sad end to that saga, at least for now. And I think that was—I think that was all I wanted to get to. There was a there was a there was a brief item in Ken Rosenthal's latest notes piece that I thought was curious and wanted to bring up before we get to listener emails, which is going to be the bulk of the show. And Rosenthal said one executive. This was just like a bullet pointed note at the bottom of a column. He said, one executive notes that the trend towards signing young players long-term is partly due to the lack of overall talent in the game. Teams need to keep the few quality players they do have. Case in point, according to the executive, North Carolina State's Trey Turner might be the only college shortstop in the top 250 picks. So this seems like, this seems like the opposite of, of what we talked about, how the talent level is, is continually rising over the years. Yeah, it does, but neither neither Ken nor I knows really what we're talking about in this case, I would say. I mean, Ken, Ken knows what he's talking about, and, and I would like to think I know what I'm talking about, but this is this is just spitballing, right? No yeah, one's a- well, this isn't even Ken. This is him passing on something an yeah. unnamed executive said. Mm-hmm. Some of those unnamed executives say some, say some strange things sometimes. I wonder mm-hmm. whether they believe them or whether they would want to put their name on them. All right, so we have questions. So this one comes from Tyson. He says, long-time listener, first-time caller. 
I purchased an MLB TV subscription this year and have been enjoying the player tracker feature. It's limited to 30 players, and most of the slots are filled with my fantasy baseball players. With my remaining spots, I have selected must-see players. Billy Hamilton, for example. After watching Bartolo Colon batting gifts all weekend, I may add him to my list. If you could only select five players for the player tracker, which five would you pick? Would you be tilted towards selecting players who might demonstrate greatness, or would you prefer the potential of silliness occurring? Hmm. 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 It's a good question. So Hamilton is probably on both of our lists, right? Or he'd be on my list? Um, I guess. I'm, uh, I'm going to talk about Hamilton a little later in the play okay. index segment. Mm. Um, and I'm not ready to give one of my spots to Hamilton. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, yeah, I'd probably put him on there just because it gives you the highest chance of seeing something that no one else in baseball can do, probably. So he'd be one of my choices. I mean, I don't know, probably just Trout would be one of my choices. It's kind of boring and obvious, but if I had to, if I had to watch only five, he would be on that list. Uh, maybe Jose Fernandez would be on that list. You Darvish would probably be on that list. And I don't know, if I could set up the player tracker to alert me when a ground ball was headed toward Andrelton Simmons so that I could switch over in time to see him field it, he'd be on my list. Yeah, I think Jose Fernandez is the only one that has kind of uh, the power to be a constant on my list. I mean, this is this list would change every couple days. I mean, so much of it is, um, you know, kind of tracking whatever interesting narrative is is going on in that three or four or five day period. Um, and also just you, like you fall in and out of love with various people. Like right now I'm really into Willie Peralta and I'm uh, really into Starling Marte. And so like right now over the past you know week and a half and maybe over the next week and a half, those guys would both be on my list, but they probably won't be in July uh, probably. Um, Fernandez is a constant. Um, I don't know that I have a hard time. Uh, I have a hard time. Um, you know, there's so much baseball going on at all times mm-hmm. that I have a, a really hard time filtering what I, what I'm going to watch, uh, for any, any reason or, or using any filter other than, um, uh, uh self-interest, which is to say, uh, some sort of say relievers only fantasy league uh or um uh you know a article interest you know the Mm -hmm. the topic that i'm interested in that i either uh, have recently wrote about or am writing about or plan to write about um and so in both cases uh there's like sort of there's a profit element to it uh, that makes my answer impure and so i kind of feel ashamed to put any particular answer out there uh, right now, but um, I mean, I I usually decide what game to watch. I don't know if this answers the question, but I usually decide what game to watch uh, based on either the uh, pitching matchup or the teams. It's very rare that I'll pick a matchup for a player, and it's very rare that I'll switch over to see one player bat, uh, unless you know, again, unless there's some sort of self interest in it. So. Uh, right now, I think that, um, like, I'm interested in watching the AL West a lot right now, just mm-hmm. in general, all the AL West games. I, I find uh, the top four teams to all be kind of interestingly intertwined in this race. So 
that's kind of where I've been going. Um, so like at the moment, I've I have had interest in John Jaso and Jed Lowry, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and those, those aren't great answers. But those are guys who I feel like I've been watching a lot lately and paying attention when they're up. Hmm. I've been consuming baseball almost entirely through highlight shows this year. I set my I set my TV to be on MLB Network when it turns on. So since it's so easy, I just turn it on pretty much all the time. And it's just, I don't know, it's so much more efficient for someone who ostensibly has to know what's going on with every team or at least would benefit from knowing what's going on with every team and seeing at least some of every game and seeing all the notable plays. It's just so much easier for me to do that. Because if I sit down and devote three hours to a game, then... That's all the time I had <laughs> to watch baseball, and then I don't know anything else. Kimbrel, Kimbrel's one of my five. I have two two certainties. So Fernandez and Kimbrel are two locks. Kimbrel's... And right now, right now Tanaka is definitely Tanaka yeah. might be a lock for the year. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm. So far, I've been fairly shocked uh, by him, mm-hmm. and and it's not quite obvious uh, watching him. So there's this sort of. Uh, like it's not uh, you. You see the numbers at the end of each start, and they're amazing. And he manages to just never ever issue ball four. Um, and that's for the same reason that sort of Uehara was for a long time, is it? And Cliff Lee was for a long time. I really like pitchers who don't issue walks. Mm-hmm. Um, like because uh, because you know that I I'm fascinated by how hard it is not to issue walks that. How hard it is to throw a strike in in the best of circumstances, and in particular in the worst of circumstances. When you when you fall behind a guy and you can't you can't you cannot walk him, and you have to throw three or three or four straight pitches in this small uh, strike zone. I don't know how these guys do it. And so um, when there's a person who just seems to have completely uh, defeated the strike zone, like uh, Cliff Lee and and O'Hara did, um, I'm interested. So Tanaka's uh, right now would be a top five. Kimbrel almost feels too predictable to me. His outings are often just flawless. Doesn't that get a little boring after a while? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> it doesn't. Because it's because uh, he's still only thrown like 180 innings in his career or something like mm-hmm. that. He's basically in the middle of the greatest season of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, let's see. He's thrown. Uh, hundred, uh, 234 innings. So basically it would be like, uh, you know, would you be bored of 1999 Pedro by September? Probably not. Right. Mm. All right. Next question comes from Pell in Sweden. He says, I've been meaning to write about this podcast. I heard you fellows do about four months ago. Can't exactly remember when it was. The topic was that some news broke from a source within a team and Ben stated that he didn't like these stories breaking with anonymous sources and that he preferred to get all his news as press releases from teams. I was really surprised by this point of view, as many of the biggest stories wouldn't have been known if it weren't for the investigative journalism done by many reporters with anonymous sources, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so I wanted to just respond to that because I don't think that was quite what I said. I don't remember exactly what I said, but my, my point at the time was I was limiting it to just pure transaction news breaking, not investigative journalism, which is how a lot of the best stories in baseball come out. And of course, I'm completely in favor of that. And baseball would be a lot more boring if if we didn't have reporters digging into things. It's just the purely the the transaction, just the the signing, the trade. I don't need to 
have that broken basically before the team is ready to announce it. If they wanted to be the ones to announce it and just put it out there, that's fine. Um, I don't think I personally, as a reader, as a consumer of baseball, would lose all that much if we just didn't have that that race to be the first to break a signing or a trade. Uh, and, you know, everyone races to report it on Twitter, and then two minutes later someone else reported, reports it, and then someone else confirms the original report, and, and it goes on and on for a while. And someone gets the credit for that news breaking, but no one ever really remembers who it is except probably the, the few people who are breaking these stories. So that's really all I was talking about, and that's all I think. Uh yeah, I, I think that you're not you're not opposed to getting the news five minutes earlier. You just place a much lower value on it than society seems to award or than mm-hmm. that these reporters seem to think they're getting out of it. I mean, right. I, I think that the problem most people have with this type of journalism is that it becomes an end uh, or kind of like a, it, it becomes uh, uh, valued even though there is no actual intrinsic value. There is no value to us. Uh, getting it five minutes earlier, and so we become sort of frustrated seeing it treated as a valuable thing. However, I will give you a counter-argument, and I will uh, declare here that you are wrong, and you have not thought this through. Okay. Um, and the reason is that the um, that where this has taken us is that no longer are these moves simply reported five minutes earlier or 15 minutes earlier, but they are reported earlier in the process. And so we are getting a lot, like you, you and I have both written transaction analyses, for moves that were, uh, like, it's like uh, Heyman will report that something is imminent. Mm-hmm. And so we have really no choice but to write up a transaction analysis of it because uh, other people are and everybody's talking about it. And four days from now, it's going to seem anticlimactic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet it will take four days before it's done. And it might not even get done. We, <laughs> yes, we've, we've both written. <laughs> you, you and I have both written transaction analyses for transactions that don't exist. Yes. And I would say that um, while... Um, by normal journalistic standards, this would be seen as a bug, uh, and you know, if this were r- real world, real life stuff that mattered, it'd be like, wow, we're spending a lot of oxygen on things that didn't happen or uh, that um, we didn't have the actual story. But the whole point of baseball is to be interesting and to give us things to talk about and to give us things to be entertained by um, and to discuss and to learn about the sport from. And so with the with this uh, reporting, this kind of like hyper aggressive rumors reporting uh, having developed, we get like much more to talk about than we ever would have. We get not only do we get the moves that happen, uh, but we get the moves that we think are going to happen. Mm -hmm. And I would say that it's good for the sport and it's good for us. Probably probably is. Yeah, I mean, the offseason would probably be more boring otherwise, which uh, it can be frustrating, too, to hear rumors about moves that never happen and to hear them over and over again. Frustrating sort of, Frustrating how? Because, I mean, you mean is it, it's frustrating when you've invested some of your kind of emotions in a move that didn't end up happening and you feel betrayed? Or frustrating knowing that all the things that happen are uh, devalued somewhat because you don't have the certainty of knowing that they're going to stick. Uh, the latter for me, maybe the former yeah. for someone has, who has more of a rooting interest in, in a yeah. team that is rumored to be making a big move. But Yeah, I have no sympathy for the former argument. I do. The latter is correct, though. You're right. There is a, there is a way that the, uh, that the uh, uh, unreliability of things makes everything cheaper and less enjoyable. So and I, I think that you could make the case that that's a, a fair argument. And maybe there's a risk that 
if we didn't have the the Buster Olneys and Ken Rosenthal's digging all the time and trying to be first, teams would teams would have no incentive to tell us before opening day really what they were doing. So they wouldn't necessarily tell us on the same time frame that they do right now. Maybe they'd drag their feet even more and and they'd all announce the moves on the same day right before spring training starts or something like that. So maybe it ensures that there's more of a steady stream of of breaking stuff. And and I definitely don't mean to to minimize the difficulty of doing that job because it's immensely difficult and I'm impressed that people are able to do it. Um, I just I'm not sure how much how much different my life would be if if they didn't do it. The other thing, Ben, is that last year Chris Carter would have been on my list from day one to the to the final day. I, I I was obsessed with watching Chris Carter all year last year, and this year I just don't care at all. And so there's like a there's definitely something arbitrary going on in my brain that makes people either interesting or not interesting for no reason that would be interesting to anybody else. <laughs> Maybe you just overwatched Chris Carter. You Could be, have but I mean, fractioned like, out but, his plate appearances. But why was I into him on day 162 but not – I mean what changed between days? Although I will say, have you ever had – I mean I, I'm sure you have. But you know how sometimes you, you're really into a song, like some sort of pop song or a rock song, mm-hmm. and you listen to it on repeat? Yep. And you can listen to it on repeat forever. You can listen to it thousands of times in a row without losing the rush. Mm-hmm. But if you take like three days off and you go back to it, it's never the same. <laughs> yeah, right. So maybe that was Chris Carter. Chris Carter was like uh, – for me, in eighth grade, I listened to Cornflake Girl uh, by Tori Amos on repeat uh, every single day of eighth grade because I, I, my, my parents and my sister were all out of the house by the time I woke up because I was in middle school and we started later. So I would just immediately press play on repeat and <laughs> listen to it. So I listened to that song probably 25 times a day for an entire year. And uh, now I just don't really like it. Hmm. I have an enormous tolerance for songs that I like. I don't know that I've really played out a song that I used to love and to the to the point that I don't ever want to listen to it anymore. I might have to take a break, come back to it, but after a while it's it's has the same impact. The only song that has maintained the same impact for me is uh is The Sign by Ace of Base, which I have spent multiple days of my life. I one time I uh went from uh from uh, as soon as I logged on to my computer at the beginning of a work day until the end of the day for a week. <laughs> and uh, I still I get a rush every time <laughs> I hear that song. <laughs> song's so good. <laughs> Maybe that'll be our intro sound today. You'll never right. stop listening. Um, okay, Andy asks, why is a changeup more effective to an opposite-handed hitter? And the, the explanation for that is just the, the way that it breaks. If a uh, if a pitcher throws a changeup and it's and it's pretty much the the same train changeup all else being equal and he just aims it at the middle of the strike zone, the pitch will go down in a way or it'll tend to go down in a way to an opposite-handed hitter and down and into a same-handed hitter, and you would generally prefer the down and away pitch or the down and away pitch is usually more successful. So that's the basic reason i, I well, did a, yeah mm-hmm. sorry go ahead i didn't mean to interrupt you go well, ahead i i wrote about the the rays last year and their change-up revolution and how they had started to throw change-ups to same-handed hitters much more often and partially it was because they just have 
really good changeup pitchers. They they have emphasized it as an important pitch, and so all of their pitchers have good changeups, and so they can use it in times when other pitchers wouldn't want to. And and it's partially the element of surprise, and batters don't expect to see it, so they can throw it, and and it works better. And and Matt Moore told me uh, when you think of lefties, they like to drop the head. It's more of a sweepy swing. The bottom of the zone for lefties, it's such a sweet spot t- for me. Typically where the changeup is going to go is down and into a lefty, down and into a righty. And Jose Lobaton said that the only problem people say with the changeup is that righties against righties, if you hang it, they're going to hit it pretty good. With some lefties, when they hang it, they can hit a pop-up. Righties can hit it better. They say the ball moves inside to them. And they don't just say that. It's actually true. What were you going to say? I was just going to say that if it if it moves inside to same-handed hitters, um, there's uh, you, batters are sort of slower to to pitches that are inside. I mean, that's why an inside fastball is so effective, right? And so if you throw an inside changeup in a way, you're sort of speeding up the bat in a location where you're, you should be able to bust them inside. You're, you're sort of almost throwing mm-hmm. them the pitch that they, that, that they wish that you had thrown them in that location that they mm-hmm. can't catch up to otherwise. Right. All right. You want to do play index segment? Yeah, sure. So, um, so uh, on Hang Up and Listen which is my favorite sports podcast. Um, Mike Pesca this week talked about Billy Hamilton, and he talked about Billy Hamilton's stolen base uh, numbers compared to his on-base deficiencies. And um, both of these things are well-known among people who listen to this podcast. And he went looking for um, sort of the greatest uh, examples of of high stolen base, low on-base percentage guys, and uh, I'm just basically totally ripping that off, but um, but taking a, a play index stab at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mike Pesca's uh, approach was was really more to look at guys who stole 60 bases or more, which is a pretty good baseline for an elite base stealer, and then looked for the guys who had the lowest on base percentage, lowest walk rates, lowest hit rates. Um, and I'm looking, I'm using play index slightly differently. Um, I'm using the ratio of one stat to another. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, I'm looking at individual seasons that all players have had, um, and using the ratio tool, uh, to find guys, well, uh, a few, a couple different searches, but Billy Hamilton, after stealing a base today, um, and reaching, uh, uh I should say Tuesday and reaching twice has now stolen, um, uh, 42% as many bases as times reached base so mm-hmm. uh you know if he reached base 100 times at this rate he would have stolen 42 bases and that's very high um obviously that's what we know about billy hamilton is he steals every single time so i wanted to put in perspective how high that was so um i looked first for uh batters who have uh stolen 42 percent as many bases as times reached uh and i excluded reached on airs to try to get consistency throughout eras, um, and this doesn't. Well, uh, yeah, I'll give caveats later. But uh, so 42% as many stolen bases as times reached, and a, ma- a minimum of 15 stolen bases. There are 42 of those guys throughout history. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that gives you some sense of what Billy Hamilton is doing. It is not unique. It is not unprecedented. It is you know, on the higher end, but, you know, we already knew Billy Hamilton was on the higher end. To put it in perspective, Eric Davis at age 23 
was stealing about as often as Billy Hamilton has this year. Uh, uh, and uh, maybe sort of, mm, interestingly, Ricky Henderson uh, would be, well, I guess I, it's not that interesting that Ricky Henderson, when he stole 130 bases, obviously topped this mark. Uh, but two of the eight players who stole 100 bases uh, in history actually did not manage to do it, which is uh, kind of impressive that you could mm-hmm. steal 100 bases without stealing uh, at this rate that's been, um, you know, not that rare. So Maury Wills stole 100 bases without doing this. Ricky Henderson stole 100 bases uh, one year uh, whilst while only stealing 33% as many as times reached, which... To put that in perspective, because this is all about putting things in perspective, is the same rate that uh, Gerard Dyson and Rajai Davis stole at last year. Mm -hmm. So basically, the difference between Ricky Henderson and Rajai Davis, uh, you could argue, uh, if you wanted, uh, and you only had one number in front of you, and you didn't have to go through any of the uh, extra work of finding other numbers to support or or dispute (laughs) this, you could argue that Rajai Davis and Gerard Dyson are as good at stealing bases as Ricky Henderson. They are just not as good at getting on base as mm-hmm. Ricky Henderson. That would be a bad argument, but you could do it. <laughs> so then, uh, of course, uh, as this as these things go, I raise the bar. Uh, I go to 50%, and uh, there are 18 players who have stolen uh, 50% as many bit There's not a really good way to say this, to, to describe this formula that I'm using, but who have stolen half as many bases as times reached. Um, But of the 18, really eight of them are ringers. And there's something interesting about the ringers. By ringer, I mean they really were just basically designated pinch runners. And when you think of a designated pinch runner, you think of Herb Washington, who we've talked about on this podcast, who I wrote um, about at length in uh, relation to Billy Hamilton not that long ago, the, Mm -hmm. the, the the world class sprinter who Charlie Finley tried to use as a pinch runner and never let him do anything other than pinch run, never let him hold a glover or, or a bat. Um, but what I, what I didn't really appreciate when I was writing about Herb Washington, what old-timers I'm sure will know, is that this was sort of an obsession with Finley, and in, an, in a five-year period, uh, he basically had eight guys who were designated pinch runners. Uh, eight, eight of the 18 guys on our list are A's in that five-year period. And they're all they're all heavily heavily tilted because they were pinch running all the time. Um, so of course, eight in five years means that in some years he had two. They were carrying two guys who were doing nothing but pinch run on their roster. Um, so these guys, besides Herb Washington, for one year are Larry Lintz, Miguel Delone, who did this twice, Matt Alexander, who did it three times, and Dan Hopkins. Um, in one year, in 1976, Lintz and Alexander stole 51 bases for the A's and reached base a total of three times. Uh, and Alexander that year uh, actually did bat 30 times, and he had an 033, 033, 033 slash line with 20 stolen bases. Um, <laughs> uh, and so the the this is I didn't really realize that the uh, that Finley's Herb Washington uh, experiment failed. I think by pretty much all all uh, opinions failed. But rather than give it up completely, he tried it with baseball players because a big part of the Washington problem was that nobody in the clubhouse considered him a baseball player, and it created a lot of tension. And when when he failed, he was a very easy scapegoat, and the the reporters would rip him and everything because he wasn't a ball player. So Finley basically tried doing the exact same thing with ball players, and it was really no more successful. Those 
those eight guys in those five years who were all essentially designated speedsters uh, stole 215 bases and were caught 100, uh, 100 times, which is you know basically around league average for the era. Anyway, so uh, we're basically talking about there's 10 guys who, who had real seasons and topped the 50% mark. So now I go up to 60, and it's basically down to, to, to like three. And Willie Wilson is on there, and Willie Wilson is the king of this. He crushes all comers. He's, uh, I, he's, he's at 60, he's at 65, he's at 70, and then he, even at 75, his, his, in his um, most steel-heavy season, he stole bases, he stole 46 bases and reached base 61 times, which wow. is a 75% ratio. Crushes everybody who had any season. Um, and so, uh, of course, the problem with this is that there are all sorts of other factors that are not showing up in this play index. For instance, if you reach on a fielder's choice, it doesn't count as reaching base, right? right. And if you if you go in as a pinch runner, it doesn't count as reaching base. And Wilson did go in as a pinch runner sometimes. So I went through a month of his of that season. I just picked May and went through every game he played and looked at um, at how often he stole when he had the chance, uh, realistically. So. Uh, because the other thing is that if you single, but there's a guy in front of you, you can't steal then either. So it goes both ways. There's all sorts of things that skew things. And if you if you hit a single in the ninth inning and you're up 16 runs, you can't really steal then either. So I went through and looked at uh, all the times he was on first base and all the times he was on second base and looked at how often he stole second and how often he stole third uh, when he could possibly uh including all the pinch running appearances, all the fielder's choices, all the times when he couldn't run because there was a guy in front of him, etc. And um, 11 times he could have stolen second base, uh, eight times he tried, uh, and the three he didn't, twice it was when they were down multiple runs in the eighth, and once when he was down three runs in the fifth. Now, I would argue that in that case, he probably should have gone uh, by his standard of stealing bases. So essentially, you can say that there was one clear case where he didn't steal when it, it would have maybe made some sense to. Um, but basically, he was going every time there was any 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 real possibility of it. Uh, and then when he was on second, three out of eight times, or sorry, uh, four out of eight times he was on second with a chance to steal third, he attempted. Um, so he, uh, I mentioned that I was uh, kind of still on the fence with Billy Hamilton. When you look at what Willie Wilson was doing, um, it was actually every bit as aggressive as what we think of Billy Hamilton doing, um, and probably more aggressive. Uh, and then similarly, if you, uh, to change the subject slightly, if you look at Tim Raines' stolen base rates when he was coming up, uh, he was stealing bases, you know, basically just as efficiently and almost as frequently in the majors as Billy Hamilton was in the minors, uh, unquestionably a better base stealer, a, a more dominating base stealer, more intimidating base stealer. And so uh, while Hamilton is very fast and it's interesting to see him run, um, he is not yet, in my opinion, historic. <laughs> and that's why John Jaso is in your five. That's why John Jaso. John Jaso's fun to watch. <laughs> all right. Uh, well, all right. thank you for playing Dexing. Um, you can do all the fun things that Sam just did and many others. At BaseballReference.com, if you subscribe to the Play Index using the coupon code BP to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription, we recommend that you do that. You can try it. There's a, a money-back guarantee. 
but we don't think you'll need it. So let me segue into a Billy Hamilton question that we got, which is uh, from Christopher in Tennessee, who asks, when talking about players like Billy Hamilton, people always say you can't steal first base, but what if you could? What if when the pitcher started his windup, the batter could throw his bat down and run to first? How often, practically speaking, would a player like Hamilton be safe? It seems to me that a left-handed batter might actually be fairly successful, especially when it comes to pass balls and such. How much would a rule like this help the Hamiltons and D. Gordons of the world, and would you want to use this instead of a bunt? So I guess, I mean, thinking about the times involved, the, the average pitcher delivery is something like 1.4 seconds, and the average catcher pop time to second base is 1.95 and so this is a, a shorter throw distance, but maybe also a more difficult throw angle. So if you just, I mean, if you just add those times together, it seems like even Billy Hamilton would be hard pressed to do this often. Yeah, you'd have to, you and I would have to know how much harder the angle is, because it's the only way that it would make sense is if uh, in clearing a lane, the catcher had to, uh, you know, expend 0.3 or 0.4 seconds uh, and was more likely to make an error. Mm -hmm. uh, I do wonder whether in this potential world where this happened, whether it would be to the left-handed catcher, which is what I think a lot mm -hmm. of people uh, want to see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's a possible byproduct of this. All right. Well, that doesn't seem like a solution to, to Billy Hamilton's on-base problems. But Christopher also asks, if you could reduce the likelihood of Tommy John surgery on a pitcher by 99%, but you were forced to accept a certain performance hit in order to prevent that injury, how much of a hit would be acceptable in return? Let's assume he has possible star potential and he's not guaranteed Tommy John surgery if you don't take this deal. Let's also assume that you have six years of control that you expect your team to be in contention in each of these seasons? Huh. Well, so what a third of major leaguers have had Tommy John surgery, but, um, you know, a lot of them had it in the minors. Yeah, college. Uh, or college, and a lot of them have it after the six-year window. And so that's certainly not a 33% chance that you're going to get that guy's Tommy John no. uh, in your six-year window. Uh, what would you guess it is? A one in what? What? Just off the top of your head, what? One in fifteen? One in twelve? That if you have a if you have a a rookie pitcher and you know you're going to have him for the next six years, what would you think the odds are yeah, that probably, he's having a TJ? Probably, I don't. Know, if the rate is rising, I, I don't know. Maybe one in one in eleven or twelve. Something like that. All right, so say one in 12, and you're going to lose one year, but you feel like with about 90% certainty that he's going to come back at full strength. So you're going to have, you're going to lose, uh, you know, one-sixth of his production, one, say one-twelfth of the time. So you're going to lose one-seventy-second of his value, uh, mm -hmm. plus, plus the 10% possibility that his Tommy John won't take. Uh, for whatever years are remaining, but basically that's a that's a small that's a rounding error. So let's say uh, you're going to lose one sixtieth of his production. Mm -hmm. um, so I would I would not take a a very big hit. I would rather have I would just rather have the good pitcher and take my chances. Mm -hmm. Makes sense to me. 
All right. Matt Sussman of Baseball Prospectus asks, everyone wore number 42 on Jackie Robinson Day, and nobody was confused with who was who because everyone has fixed positions. In most sports, this would cause chaos. Maybe it's me, but I don't remember player numbers, so if the game got rid of jersey numbers, would we be missing that much? And actually... Well, the other thing is that... The other thing is that they not only do they have fixed positions, but in no case is the number relevant. There's no, like, no to be uh, to need to know who that guy is, right? <laughs> even if even if for some reason you had face blindness, right? At no point would you need to know, as, as certainly as a fan, who that guy is that made that play, right? He, he made the play or he didn't make the play. This is not. There's not a certain number of fouls to give, and there are not. There's no eligibility for anybody to play anywhere other than the pitcher. So might want right, to know. You'd want to know. Curiosity. Yeah, so you yeah can... but you'd have to be very face blind for this to be a factor. <laughs> but yeah, so go ahead. Well, I feel much the same as Matt. I'm not a, a number guy. I've never really committed these things to memory. It's not really something I associate with most players. Of course, there are some iconic numbers, but for the most part, I will not remember what a player's number is. And... I don't find much utility in it, certainly at the major league level, where even if you're at a game, you can now just open your phone and look at a box score and look at a live box score and look at game day and see who's playing what position. And so it doesn't really help me to see a jersey number at that level. The only reason that you really need jersey numbers is, you know, spring training games, if you're at a complex league game, something like that, where you can't look up who's playing what position on your phone and you might not even have an accurate roster that you can look up who's who. In that case, it's definitely benef- beneficial to to be able to associate a number with a guy. But at the major league level, eh, I don't know. Maybe it adds some some depth to the fandom. I mean, it, it seems to be important to, to some people but I wouldn't miss it much if it were gone. I just noticed the baseball reference just added FIP. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, while I was gone? Yeah, I think so. There was a post about it. Um, yeah, even, I mean, you're saying that you might not even have, even in the, even in the, even in the situation you just described where you might not have the, uh, the, an accurate roster available, the numbers wouldn't help you, right? If you didn't, no. But yeah. in many cases, so, you, you would, and you might have no idea who this guy is because you've never seen him before. I think I probably know if I probably know six uniform numbers and five of them only because they're in the guy's Twitter name, Twitter account. You know, mm-hmm. I basically know Jeter, and I I think <laughs> that's it. I don't think I know another uniform number. <laughs> so you would not miss them either. No, I would not miss them. All right. Um, All right. Well, we didn't get our Mike Trout question in yet. So here's our Mike Trout question of the week, which comes from Tyler Stafford. Uh, Mike Trout is both the best player in the major leagues in Major League Baseball today and also extremely young. At 22 years old, he theoretically would be a senior in college had he chosen that route instead of signing out of high school. My question is, given how successful Mike Trout is facing major league pitching, what would his numbers look like right now if he had chosen to go to a four-year university? Would he shatter every hitting record ever? Or do you think his development really took off somewhere in the Angels minor league system to the point where Trout might only be an above-average college hitter waiting for the right coach to tweak something in his game in the minor leagues? 
I think that with Trout specifically, I talked to people about this when I was doing the story about the Angels player development system, and um, the there was a real reluctance for anybody to give the Angels particular credit for Trout, even among the Angels, mm-hmm. uh, not because they don't have good players doing a uh, good good staff doing good work, and you know, obviously doing a lot of work with Trout, but because they drafted Trout and he went into the you know he went to Arizona to the to you know to the Arizona League to the rookie ball league and was immediately amazing like he was the best player in that league and there's sort of a general principle it, I I would I would say that's consistent with all 30 major league teams but definitely with the Angels that you don't touch the guy in the first couple of months you don't touch his swing you don't really do anything you just get to know him you find out about his girlfriend uh, you watch him. You have, you know, you 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 talk to you know the coaches talk to each other about him, and you might have start talking about a plan that you're going to present to him next year. But you don't tell him anything. You just want him to get out there and play. And he was already at that point like a revelation. Like everybody's like like uh, you know realized that he had been underdrafted. And like already at that point, like I talked to Kevin Goldstein um, that winter because I I interviewed for an Orange County Register piece, and already it was like, yeah, there's, like, you know, he was he was a hot, super hot prospect. Like, the already GMs were regretting that they hadn't drafted him. Mm-hmm. So I think the Angels would be very hesitant to take credit for that because it just happened immediately. And then he showed up at Cedar Rapids, which is A-ball, and was a phenom immediately. Like, the first week he, like, had... He had like nine infield hits in the first four games or something insane, you know, just crazy, crazy things immediately before they touched him. So for Trout specifically, I would say he would be the best college player in history. Yes. Mm -hmm. Probably wouldn't be as good a player. Like if you had left, if you had left Trout in college until he's 22 and then brought him up to the majors immediately, probably wouldn't be as good as he is right now. Right. Because he's he wouldn't have faced the, the higher level competition and maybe he wouldn't have. You know, he wouldn't be as familiar with pitches that move like that, and maybe he wouldn't have ironed out some weaknesses, and maybe he wouldn't have had the benefit of professional training programs and that sort of thing. But but he would probably be crushing college pitchers. So the lowest, the second lowest FIP ever uh, in the modern era is Dwight Gooden. I'm doing a bonus play index here. Uh-huh. Is Dwight Gooden at 1.69? Uh-huh. And the so 1.69. That's a that's very good. It's the yes. low, you know, second lowest ever. Pedro in 1999 is the lowest at 1.39, <laughs> and that's in the one of the most extreme offensive seasons in history. Yeah, Pedro. That's seasons are... crazy, 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 crazy. I think I'm I might do this for relievers. I think I might I'm... like Pedro seasons as much as Bond seasons on baseball well, reference. I did. I did. I agree. I would agree with that until I did the head-to-head matchup, you know, the uh, the log five, and uh-huh. you realize how much better the... I, I, that, I, I'm still trying to figure out what that meant. I thought about that being a topic one day, because do you really believe that Bonds... For people who didn't read that piece, um, uh, basically the math suggests that if 2003 Bonds, which is the greatest hitter of all time, faced 1999 Pedro, who's the greatest pitcher of all time, Bonds would have had an 1,100 OPS, which means that basically that Bonds would turn Pedro into the worst pitcher in the league, and Pedro would turn Bonds into merely an MVP candidate instead of a unanimous MVP. Mm-hmm. And 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 the 
the empirical data as I mean, I've been looking at a lot of matchup numbers since then, because there's a lot of great hitters who have faced a lot of great pitchers for you know in some cases hundreds of times, and the the data seems to support that. Like Stan Musial faced Warren Spawn 350 times, and he had like a 960 OPS against him, <laughs> and. So it really does seem to be the case that the best hitters are significantly better than the best pitchers. If I think that that might be true, but anyway, uh, since I since since that article, I am a little bit cool to Pedro, and I feel bad about that. <laughs> yeah, those those seasons, I mean, it, you have to mentally adjust for the offensive era and the ballpark and all of that. And once you do it, it's just it's crazy that he was able to do that. Absolutely insane. Oh. Only four relievers have ever had a lower FIP than Pedro did as a starter that year. Kimbrel, uh-huh. Gagne, Eckersley, Holland. And uh-huh. no other reliever. No other reliever, Ben. What, what innings minimums were you using there? 50. I used 50 for, for relievers, and I used qualified for ERA as a, mm. for the starters. Mm-hmm. All right. We are just about done here. Let me ask you one more from David in Bloomington, Indiana who asks if teams, if, if rosters expand to 26 or 27, do you think that it will reintroduce old ideas like platooning, defensive replacements, pinch runners, and third catchers, all of which are basically obsolete in 2014? Or do you think that given more roster spots, teams would just carry more specialized relievers going with nine or 10-man bullpens? And when we talked about this briefly on Friday's podcast, and I was saying to Rob Nyer that it seems like the future of strikeout rate is partially dependent on the future of reliever usage. And if relievers keep being used to face fewer and fewer batters, then the strikeout rate will keep rising as a result of that. And he pointed out that if rosters do expand to 26 and teams add new relievers, then that would sustain or accelerate that trend. So if if rosters expanded to 26 tomorrow or opening day 2015, how many teams do you think would use that roster spot on a pitcher? Uh, 11. Huh. I think it, I think it would be the majority because we we have seen some teams at least for a time during the season sort of treat their roster as if they had that extra spot and give it to a reliever. Um, I mean, we've seen teams go with eight-man bullpens for a while. So I, I don't know. I feel like in the current climate, if you gave them that option, a majority of them would probably go for the arm. Maybe. Um, I mean, when you talk about, for instance, having a pinch runner, a pinch running specialist, um, if a team has an extra roster spot, say for you know a three-week period in April because they get to skip a, a spot in the rotation or something like that, they don't have necessarily the the pinch running specialist candidate in AAA um, because this isn't like really a long-term plan that they can that they can do. I mean, they're certainly going to have a lot of pitchers, and so sure, bring up the pitcher. The other thing is, if you're skipping a spot in the rotation for some reason, you might consider that you need extra bullpen help. Um, but um, I I feel, I, I mean, I don't think that it would be none, and it might be a majority, but I don't think it would be all. No, I don't think it would be all. Um, and last thing I wanted to address, you can feel free to 
to address also. But this one comes from Dominic, and he asks, assume that Major League Baseball adopted a rule that every time a batter grounded into a double play, he would have to play the remainder of the game without pants. Do you Mm. think that the fear of humiliation, running around in front of 30,000 fans with nothing between the waist and socks except tidy whities and a jock, would cause batters to be extra conscientious about putting the ball in the air or otherwise avoiding one of the more frustrating and annoying outcomes in all of baseball? So this question more or less comes down to, do you think batters can control where they hit the ball, either in the air as opposed to on the ground or directionally? And this reminded me... We, we partly that's what it comes down to. It, it comes down to that partly. Mm-hmm. It also comes down to the question of whether you think that baseball players are improperly <laughs> incentivized. If you think that if you think that that tens of millions of dollars are not enough to incentivize them, but something else would be. Uh-huh. <laughs> so that's anyway, true. go ahead. And also whether they're self-conscious enough to mind playing in their underpants. Um, so this reminded me because I, I think we talked about Adam Dunn seeming to have the ability to start hitting the ball the other way when he got frustrated about the shift. And Mike Petriello wrote something about how Matt Adams seems to have done the same sort of thing. So it seems like maybe individual hitters have that ability, possibly. But this reminded me of an article that John Walsh wrote for the Hardball Times in 2008 called Hit Him Where They Ain't If You Can. And he looked at a few situations where... It's generally acknowledged that hitters would would prefer to hit the ball in a certain area or uh, on a line in the air as opposed to on the ground. He looked for the situation where guys want to hit the ball to the right side to advance the runner. And he found that in this case, um, so when you have a, a guy on and you you've got a runner on second and first base open, with zero outs, um, so this is when you you want to hit the ground ball to the right side to advance the runner, batters hit the ball to the right side 41% of the time, whereas if you have one or more outs, and at this point you don't have that incentive to hit the ball to the right side, they hit it to the right side 36% of the time. So an increase of five percentage points in the situation where they would want to hit it to the right side. And you have to figure that maybe pitchers are also pitching in, in a way that would, that would make batters not be able to do that. So they are overcoming that by a bit, but it's not a huge effect if they're all trying to do that. And then they're probably not all trying to do that. We don't know what percentage are actually trying to do this, but it's not a huge increase. And then maybe the more persuasive thing is he also looked at sack fly situations and he looked to see whether guys actually hit the ball in the air more often when, when it's a sack fly situation, when they want to get that run in. And what he found is was that they don't at all. They put the ball in play more often. They, they strike out less and they walk less. So more balls in play, but the breakdown of batted ball type in the balls that they put in play is exactly the same no difference in ground ball and fly ball rate in the sack fly situation. So that leads me to believe that it would be difficult for a hitter to, to do that. I, I agree. I, I mean, he could certainly strike out though. He could, he could choose to strike out. Yes, that's and, true. And I, and I, I would, <laughs> you would, you would just strike out to avoid the underpants situation. Yeah, I would. You could also bunt, which is a, a situation mm, that Dominic brings up. Not foolproof. 
you'd still one a couple times a year you'd still be running around in your undies mm-hmm. wouldn't do it i'd strike out uh-huh i'd strike right. out anyway all right we are finished for today thank you for your emails excellent emails please send us more for next week at podcast at baseball perspectives.com please join the facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild almost 1200 people in there and all of them real and uh please rate and review the show on itunes subscribe to the show on itunes we appreciate it and we will be back tomorrow with a new show